Linda Oakman et al. versus Education Minnesota et al. Uh, Melissa, isn't uh, 20 3436 going to be submitted without argument? Yes, it is. I did read that. Oh, okay, I missed it. Well, very good then. Uh, good morning, everyone. Sorry you can't be with us in the balmy Twin Cities, uh, but uh, remote has been working pretty well, and uh, let's all do our best to, to keep it that way so we get the we get a good uh, argu argument record. Uh, Mr. Mitchell, uh, court is ready when you are. You, you're muted, I believe. I'm sorry, Your Honor. Can you hear me now? Yes. All right. My apologies. May it please Absolutely the court. all the time. All right. Property that has been taken in violation of another's constitutional rights must be returned. Even if the defendant took the property in good faith, and even if the defendant took the property in reliance on a statute or court ruling that purported to authorize its unconstitutional conduct. This court can assume the existence... Counsel, I have to stop you there because it seems to me that historically, uh, Third Circuit Judge Fisher's concurring opinion... Uh, um, makes a good case that that's not, that's not categorically true. There have been exceptions uh, known to the common law and, and in equity in the 19th century and before. What's your response to Judge Fisher's concurrence? At, at common law and equity, we're not dealing with situations in which the Supreme Court has established something as a constitutional right under 42 U.S.C. Section 1983. And in this case and in the other cases, including the case before Judge Fisher, with all respect, there's a federal statute that requires a remedy in response to the violation of constitutional rights that has been alleged. So the question becomes, is there a type of good faith that can overlay the statute, which read alone requires payment of damages in response to a violation of the Constitution that can somehow either trump or maybe in perhaps the view of the union be something that the statutory text is read against the background of. And there's simply no background consistent principle of law where an entity that has acted in good faith yet nonetheless violated the constitutional rights of a victim is allowed to keep the property if the victim is suing for the return of property. There may be situations in which the defendant can claim an immunity from damages. Well, what about the financial transaction cases that Judge Fisher reviews? Those did not involve a situation, Judge Loken, in which the defendant was trying to keep the property that was innocently but wrongfully taken. That's well, certainly, well, if, if it was a financial transaction and, and property changed hands, the defendant got something. And but in it those wasn't. cases, mm -hmm. well, I, I, you're, I, I guess you're responsive, but you're not dealing with, with the, the, the issue as defined by Judge Fisher. Well, all these cases are distinguished. Can I read, shall I read his holding on that? Please, yes. Back with my, my brown material. A contempt 
contemporaneous exception to the general rule that an unconstitutional act is not a law and is void. In which a judicial decision either voiding a statute or overruling a prior decision does not generate retroactive civil liability with regard to financial transactions or agreements conducted without duress or fraud in reliance on the invalidated statute or overruled decision. Now, to me, that's right on point here. We respectfully disagree, Your Honor, because this is not a voluntary transaction that was entered into. The union took the money from the client's paychecks without their consent. And this is no different from the situation in the United States against Windsor, where a person was taxed improperly based on a federal statute that was considered constitutional at the time, the Defense of Marriage Act. It was later ruled unconstitutional, and the unconstitutionally collected taxes had to be returned. What Judge Fischer is describing are situations in which voluntary transactions were entered into in reliance on a statute or a legal regime at the time that was believed to be constitutional and later is declared unconstitutional. That's certainly true with respect to Pekarsky. Mr. Pekarsky was initially... For his pre-resignation due FS fair chance fees that he wants back now. That's correct, but Mr. Pekarsky is not seeking a refund of the fees that he paid at the time when he was a voluntary and enthusiastic member of the union. When he resigned... I thought he was. He was prior to 2017. I thought he wanted them all back. He's not seeking refunds before 2015. When he was an enthusiastic union member, he was a leader of the union, he's not seeking a refund for any of that stuff. He voluntarily joined, he paid the full amount of dues voluntarily, not just that, he paid them enthusiastically. When he became disillusioned with the union and sought to resign and become a fair share of fee payers, the union would not accept his resignation. So it's a different situation from what Judge Fischer is talking about. Mr. Pekarsky wanted out of the union, he tried to resign, they wouldn't accept his resignation or they claimed he wasn't resigning properly, he had to fill out certain types of paperwork and jump through certain hoops, and he's trying to get a refund of money that he claims was improperly taken from his paycheck even prior to Janus. So even under the regime of Abood, Mr. Pekarsky is alleging that money was improperly withheld. But the principle that we're relying on, Judge Loken, is not nearly as broad as what Your Honor is suggesting. It's a narrow claim that we're making. A litigant who acts in good faith but wrongfully takes another's property, even if it's innocent, even if it's in reliance on a statute that was believed to be constitutional at the time, still has to return the wrongfully taken property if the plaintiff sues for its return. And the right analogy here is United States against Windsor, where taxes paid in reliance on the Defense of Marriage Act had to be returned. The search of Congressman Jefferson's office, which was done based on an invalid search warrant, that would give the officers qualified immunity because they searched his office in good faith, but they still had to return the documents that were improperly seized from Congressman Jefferson's office. And then also in Wyatt against Cole, the Fifth Circuit case that is heavily relied on by the unions for establishing the idea of a good faith defense, when property was taken in reliance on that replevant statute that was only later declared unconstitutional, no one thinks that they should be allowed to keep the property that they improperly took, even though they took it innocently and even though they took it in good faith. So the point is that good faith will not allow a defendant to escape a restitutionary remedy, even though it will often confer an immunity from compensatory damages. 
and certainly an immunity from punitive damages. But no one gets a windfall for violating another person's constitutional rights, even if the violation of the Constitution occurred in good faith, and even if it occurred in reliance on a statute that was reasonably believed to be constitutional at that time. If I could, Your Honors, I'd like to pivot to the specific facts of some of our clients, because there's the broader principle that Judge Loken mentioned at the outset, but then there's also the issues of how they apply to the unique factual circumstances of the four specific individuals in these two consolidated cases. The situations with Burroughs and Pekarsky are slightly different uh, from the situations involving Hokeman and Hansen, because Hokeman and Hansen were non-union members who were compelled to pay agency fees against their will prior to the Supreme Court's ruling in Janus. Burroughs and Pekarsky, by contrast, were union members rather than agency fee payers. And the unions claimed that because they were members, that they voluntarily agreed to pay the full amount of union dues so that they cannot, in the union's view, establish a compelled subsidy of speech claim. Uh, but that is not... What, what, case, what case supports your, your claim as to union members, your constitutional claim, not, not Janus? No. Janus, what Janus supports is that you cannot be compelled to pay the union against your will. And Burroughs so and Janus invalidated closed shops. Janus invalidated agency shops, where the choice is either pay the union or resign. And the holding well, of Janus is a closed shop. You have to be a member. Closed shops were unconstitutional even prior to Janus. Even under the Abood regime, you couldn't be forced to join the union as a condition of public employment. Closed shops were still legal in the private right. sector. But even under even prior to Janus, you could not force membership as a condition of public employment, you could force the mere payment of agency fees. Janice put an end to that. The situation with Burroughs and Pekarsky were they joined the union prior to Janice. And the union's claim is that because they joined, they voluntarily paid full membership dues. Therefore, we don't have a compelled subsidy of speech claim because they paid the money voluntarily. That's not correct. Burroughs and Pekarsky voluntarily chose to pay the difference between full union membership dues and the agency fees they would have had to pay if they had stayed out of the union. Everyone had to pay an amount equal to the agency fee. Whether you join the union as a member or not, everyone had to pay as a condition of employment. The only choice that Burroughs and Pekarsky had was whether they would pay the additional increment, the difference between full membership dues and the compulsory agency fee that everyone had to pay in exchange for being a member of the union. So that part they can't recover. We acknowledge that. They voluntarily paid that differential between the full membership dues and the amount equal to the agency fee. But everyone had to pay the agency fee whether you joined the union or not. They were compelled to pay that as much as everybody else. Now, the other claim that the union is making with respect to Ms. Burroughs is that she signed a membership application that purports to lock her in to paying union dues even if she were to resign her membership, unless she resigns during a seven-day window that comes up once a year. These are called maintenance of dues agreements. And she signed this prior to Janice. So when she tried to get out, she quit the union in August, early August of 2018, shortly after Janice. But the union said, we're still going to tap your paycheck until that seven-day window comes around in late September, and then you have to resign during that seven-day window and revoke your commitment to pay membership dues in that period of time. So they kept on tapping her paycheck until the end of September, even though she quit the union in August after Janice gave her the right to leave and no longer pay the union. 
the question for this court is whether Ms. Burroughs was under some contractual obligation to continue paying the union even after she resigned and even after Janice gave her a constitutional right to withhold payments from the union. And the problem with the union's argument is that Burroughs never signed a contract. We agree with the union that, con that constitutional rights can be waived. I think everyone accepts that proposition. Plea bargaining is probably the best example of this, but very few constitutional rights are inalienable that can never be waived by contract. The rights under Janice are not one of the inalienable rights. They can be waived by contract. Uh, the question is, were these rights actually waived in a manner consistent with the rules that Janice establishes for a waiver of First Amendment rights? And the first problem is the membership application is not a contract. A contract has to be supported by consideration. And if you look at the text of that membership application that Ms. Burroughs signed, and we quote the full language in our opening brief, there is nothing in the text of that document that promises Ms. Burroughs anything in response for this unilateral commitment that she made to continue paying the union after she resigns her union membership. So without consideration, there is no legally enforceable contract, and the union cannot rely on that to justify its refusal to promptly implement her decision to resign in early August of 2018. So those subsequent paychecks where her money was diverted to the union was done in violation of Janice, which had already been decided, and she's entitled... Is that a, constitu is that a constitutional consideration argument, or are you just going on the basis of, of a con contract common law? This is based just contract common law. There has to be a okay. contract in order for there to be a waiver of the constitutional right. We acknowledge that constitutional rights can be waived. The union has often accused us of saying that Janice is somehow an inalienable or unalienable right that can never be waived by contract and that we're trying to somehow renege on a contractual commitment. I understand. I just wanted to make yeah. sure that we, you're talking consideration as we've known it since law school. That's correct. It's the same principles that would apply in any other contract case. The only difference here is that one of the things that's being bargained over is a constitutional right, but that shouldn't change the analysis on consideration. Same thing with plea bargains. Plea bargains have consideration in them, where a criminal defendant waives his constitutional right in exchange for lesser charges or in exchange for a binding commitment from the prosecutor not to do something. We just don't have anything in the document that shows what Ms. Burrow is promised in exchange for the supposed commitment that she made to continue paying dues. And the test for consideration is, is it possible to imagine a way in which the union could have breached this so-called contract? If it's not possible to breach the contract, then there's no consideration. And there's no way the union could have breached this membership application that Ms. Burroughs signs, because there's nothing that the union promises to Ms. Burroughs, and there's nothing that the union could do that could expose itself to breach of contract liability if they were to expel Ms. Burroughs from the union or do anything else to Ms. Burroughs. There's just nothing set out in the document itself that could qualify as consideration. The other problem with the union's argument is that the membership application needs to meet the standard for waiver of constitutional rights that was set forth in Janus. Right, so Ms. Burroughs resigned her membership after Janus came out. And Janus says that waivers of First Amendment rights in the public employment context may be done, but they have to be freely given and they have to be shown by clear and specific evidence. And we don't have in this situation a freely given waiver of Ms. Burroughs' right because she signed this membership application when the agency shop regime was still in place, when she had to either pay the union or not be a public employee. 
Were these dues that were taken after Janus taken pursuant to a state statute, or were they taken pursuant to the union's claim that she was still under some kind of contract? It was. It's the latter, Judge Carlton, because... What would be the state action, then? The state action would be the fact that her public employer diverted the money from her paycheck to the union at the union's request. So the state employer had to be involved in implementing this supposed contract. And again, we deny that it's a contract. But the state employer was the one that kept withholding the money from her paycheck against her wishes and put it in the union's coffers. So we have state action, even if there's not a constitutional state statute compelling this type of diversion. Any type of agreement between the union and the employer to divert money from employee paychecks is something that qualifies as state action. I stand into my rebuttal time, and I'd like to say five minutes if I could. I'm happy to answer the court's questions. If Am I right? We're, we're just talking about six or seven weeks for Ms. Burroughs? Oh, I think it's less than that, Your Honor. It, it was only, uh, she, she resigned in, it is six or seven weeks between the time she resigned in early August and by the time she was finally let out, but there were only, I think, two or maybe three paychecks that were tapped because she wasn't getting paid over the summer. So it's a short window of time, both with respect to the failure to accept her resignation and also an even shorter period of time with respect to the time in which her wages were being diverted against her will. Well, on the state action question, though, if the state is just responding to a private decision of the union and there's no compulsion by the state, does that make a difference for state action purposes? I don't believe it does, Judge Carlton, because that argument, with all respect, in our view, proves too much because it would suggest that the union could just demand that a state employer disregard Janice with impunity, and if the state employer is diverting wages, then there's no state action under Section 1983. The involvement of the state employer in taking the money from the employee's paycheck and sending it to the union is state action, and that is what gives Ms. Burroughs a cause of action under Section 1983 because the union and the state are acting together under color of state law. The union and the state employer, or it could be a municipal employer, but some type of state entity, have an agreement among themselves that wages will be diverted from the paychecks of public employees to the union, either on the union's request, maybe it's pursuant to an agreement between the union and the employee, maybe it's pursuant to a statute, but none of that matters because the state employer is still involved in diverting the wages, and that's all we need to get us past the state action hurdle and past the undercolors. Your, your, best, your best case for that proposition? I would say Janice, honestly. I mean, I know Janice doesn't discuss the state action issue explicitly. Well, anything, else, anything else on this state action? Because your, your notion of, of, uh, of uh, sort of neutral participation of some state actor in a transaction between private parties satisfying the state action test, that doesn't sound right to me. Well, it's, as long as the state is doing something to the paycheck of the public employee. Yeah, best case, best case besides Janice for that proposition. I don't know if there's a case post-Janice that's explicitly held that that's enough. It doesn't have to be post-Janice other than Janice. Uh, the, the cases that we would cite would be the cases like Richardson that set forth the basic requirements, the, the two-part test for state action, right? Is, is there involvement of state officials? Is there state action under the traditional test for state action doctrine? That is what we would suggest is our best okay. authority. It doesn't specifically deal with this question, Your Honor, but it sets forth the basic test that's to be applied to this type of situation. 
And how about Blum? How about Blum against Uretsky? Does that go the other way? Are you familiar with that case? No, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Could you remind me? That's all right. No, it's not worth dwelling on if you're not familiar with it. It's all right. Uh, and if I could, I, I know I'm into, well into my rebuttal time, but I, I would like to preserve some time, so I, I think I should stop here unless the court has additional questions. Thank you, Your Honors. Very good. Let's see, Mr. Pitts, are you next? I am. Good morning, Your Honors. Casey Pitts for the defendants' appellees in the Hochman case. Um, I'll start by addressing the good faith defense, and then we'll address Ms. Burroughs' claim for a refund of union membership dues. Um, I will not address plaintiff's appeal of the district court's order taxing costs unless the court has specific questions on that issue. In this case, the district court, like every other court to have considered the question since Janus, including now seven other circuit courts, held that unions that received and expended agency fees prior to Janus in reliance on state law and then binding Supreme Court precedent cannot be held monetarily liable under Section 1983 for having done so. That outcome follows directly from the Supreme Court's decision in Lugar versus Edmondson Oil Company. Although the focus of Section 1983 in the Constitution itself is protecting private parties from their government, Lugar held for the first time that, certain, that private parties could be sued under Section 1983 for invoking certain state-created procedures. The Lugar Court recognized that its interpretation of Section 1983 created what it called a problem, namely that innocent private parties could face monetary liability for their reliance on state laws subsequently deemed unconstitutional. And the Lugar Court concluded that this problem should be addressed through recognition of an affirmative good faith defense. There is now a broad and unbroken consensus in the lower courts recognizing the defense. And the facts here present the strongest possible circumstances for its application. Given that the union both relied on state law and then binding Supreme Court precedent, and expended the agency fees at issue, providing representation to everyone in the represented bargaining units, including plaintiffs themselves. The Supreme Court has emphasized that in determining what defenses and immunities are available to litigants sued under Section 1983, the starting point is the background common law as it existed in 1871. And the proper question in undertaking that analysis is, would the conduct at issue have given rise to strict liability at common law uh, in 1871. In other words, would a, a party who engaged in conduct like the conduct that's alleged in the Section 1983 claim have been unable to assert good faith or any other def defense of that sort at common law and would have Congress expected that party to face strict liability? Um, here, as every court to consider the issue has recognized, the, common law, the background common law principles strongly support recognition of a good faith defense that the recognition starts with Wyatt itself, in which Justice Kennedy emphasized that reliance on a state law that has not yet been uh, struck down is presumptively reasonable. Um, furthermore, as Judge Sutton and his colleagues in the Sixth Circuit recognized in the Ogle case, the recognition of the good faith defense here is, is appropriate because the claims here are quite analogous to common law abusive process claims here. As, as the court is aware from the briefing, abusive process involves the misuse of an otherwise permissible process towards an impermissible end. That was the common law tort and it required malice and an objective unreasonableness. Here, the claim is effectively the same. The claim is that the union misused 
the deduction procedures available under state law to a constitutionally impermissible end, namely to support their expressive activities. Janice held that that was an impermissible end. Um, and that's the reason that abusive process is, a, is deeply analogous to the claim here and supports recognition of the good faith defense. Further, as Judge Loken noted, there's a separate body of law that Judge Fisher identified in his diamond concurrence that, that provides even more support for recognition of the good faith defense, which is that where parties entered into transactions on the basis of statutes that had not yet been invalidated, uh, the courts generally did not undo those transactions uh, after the fact. Um, Mr. Mitchell, content, primary well, if, response... If they, were, if they were financial. If they were financial... I, I, they, I, don't, think, I don't think those cases would have applied to the, to the uh, unconstitutional seizure of property where uh, the seizing officer gets qualified immunity and then says, I ain't given, I ain't given your, your gold rings back. Well, the, the question of the, the return, right of the return to property is simply not the, the question in, in a case, in, a, in the Section 1983 case, for example. The question, for example, in a procedural due process case, <clears throat> Uh, the question of who is entitled to pro the property at the end of the case is determined by state property law, not as a matter of remedies under Section 983. But more fundamentally, there's no question that what well, we're counsel, dealing with counsel, here... We see a lot, counsel, we see a lot of 1983 cases suing for return of property. Right, well, and if, they're, if it's a takings claim, for example, fourth, or... Fourth amendment, they're Fourth Amendment grounded. They're not all substantive due process grounded. Right, and there are property rights established by the Constitution in which the remedy is proper. But regardless, there's no question here that we are dealing with finances. We are dealing with money. We are dealing with a transaction that was entered into between the union and the uh, members and non-members on the basis of a statute that had not yet been invalidated. So that's directly comparable to what Judge Fisher was addressing in his opinion. And as you know, Mr. Mitchell's only attempt to distinguish that was on the basis of the voluntariness of the transaction. And that, that distinction doesn't work. As Judge Fisher noted, the kind of coercion necessary to overcome that principle in the, uh, in the, under the common law was where the actor was, uh, where the, the money was provided on threat of seizure of a person's body or property. It was coercion because the, other, the party on the other side generally a government party, had the right to seize the property or person and the, the money was given in order to avoid such a seizure. There's no question that that happened here. Here, each of these individuals actually voluntarily accepted public employment with an understanding at the time that they did so that payment of agencies would be a condition of their employment. So they didn't face the kind of coercion that could uh, obviate the principles recognized in Judge Fisher's opinion. Um, Furthermore, I will also say it's also clear um, the Judge Fisher's opinion, as, as you noted, Judge Loken, um, effectively destroys the, the theory that pop, the, the sort of property theory that is the primary theory being pursued in this case. It demonstrates that the common law did not contain some universal principle that property taken must be returned. In fact, the common law took a much more nuanced approach to that and recognized in circumstances like this that, that, proper, that money generally would not be returned and the financial tractions would not be undone. Um, but it, and it is also clear in this case, as every court to consider this issue has recognized, that this is not a case for the equitable return of property or the restitution of property. The plaintiffs here are seeking an award of funds from the union's general assets. And 
the United States Supreme Court in the Montanil case and this court uh, in the Dakota Western and uh, Ibsen cases um, recognize that that kind of claim is a claim for damages. It's a legal claim for damages, not a claim for the restitution of property. Um, and that, so that's dispositive of their claim that they are pursuing a claim for the return of property here. Every court to consider this has properly recognized that under the well-established principles distinguishing legal damages from equitable remedies like restitution, the claim against the union's general treasury for the return of funds that have been expended by definition they were expended. They were required to be expended under the Hudson regime that existed before Janus. Um, but that is a claim for the return of property. Unless the court has further questions on the good faith defense, I will turn to Ms. Burroughs' separate claims um, <coughs> for a return of her union membership dues. Uh, those claims fail for two independent reasons. First, as the court was discussing, at the end of Mr. Mitchell's time, there is simply no state action here with respect to those claims sufficient to trigger Section 1983 liability. Uh, the core question in determining whether there is state action, the first and fundamental question is, what is the source of the dispute at issue? What is the choice at issue? Here, the source of the dispute and the choice at issue is the agreement between Ms. Burroughs and the union, where she agreed to pay union membership twos and agreed to do so for a uh, defined period of time, even if she should resign from the union prior to the expiration of that time. That is the source of this dispute. It's a private agreement. It is not a, she is not challenging uh, something that can be properly characterized as a state policy, as is necessary under the first prong of uh, of the Luger versus Edmondson oil test to determine whether someone is a state actor. As Judge Colleton noted, the Blum versus Uretsky case, and I would also note um, the American Manufacturers Mutual Insurance Company versus Sullivan case, both recognize that the kind of ministerial response to private actions by the government at issue here does not constitute state action for purposes of section 1983. Uh, the Sullivan case is particularly uh, informative because in that case, the Supreme Court, for purposes of the second prong of Luger Oil about whether a private party like the unions here can be characterized as a state actor, says, is there such a relationship between the private party and the government that the choice at issue can be characterized as the government's rather than as the private party's? And here, the choice at issue is the choice made by the union and Ms. Burroughs when she entered into her agreement to continue paying union, to pay union dues and to continue doing so for a defined period of time, even should she resign prior to the end of that time. That choice is a private choice between those private parties and does not constitute state action. So do you think she would have a, some sort of contract claim against the union then if she were correct on the... <clears throat> She, the deductions. she may have a state law claim if she claim if she believed that they were taken and that she that, that she was not contractually obligated to pay them. She may also be able to pursue a claim before Minnesota's uh, public employee labor relations entity. Um, you know, a claim under PERLA for an unfair labor practice. These are matters of state law to be determined by 
the state in the context of both its law of contracts and its law of public employee labor relations. Uh, they don't give rise to constitutional claims under Section 1983. Um, but I, I want to be clear that even if there were state action here, there wouldn't be a First Amendment problem, which is the second problem with Ms. Burroughs' claim. Um, uh, Ms. Mr. Mitchell primarily content, he acknowledges that claim, that these rights can be waived and that a contractual commitment to pay union dues is binding and constitutes a valid waiver of First Amendment rights, but contends that there is no waiver here. And that's, that's simply wrong. First, with respect to whether there is consideration to support this agreement. Ms. Burroughs admits that she received the benefits of union membership in exchange for her payment of union membership dues. Every court to consider those question, that question, both in the context of uh, these kinds of post-Janus claims and in other contexts, including lawsuits against unions for violation of members' contractual rights, has recognized that the relationship between a union and its members is contractual and that it, there is a contractual, agree, uh, contractual relationship between both. And in fact, if Merce Burroughs had been denied her contractual rights, she would have rights to enforce the unions, uh, her, her rights as a union member in court or before Minnesota's Public Employee Labor Relations Authority. So, so he's simply wrong to say that there's no consideration here. And indeed, Minnesota law is clear that where the parties have an existing agreement and then replace it with a new agreement, there is not a requirement for separate or new consideration that they've essentially uh, chosen to continue their relationship on the basis of this new agreement, and that's sufficient to constitute um, to constitute an agreement. Uh, further, there's no additional waiver that's required under Janus or other, uh, under any other principle. Uh, plaintiff, Mr. Mitchell's contention is effectively that unions have to Mirandize. Uh, let, me just, let me just ask you what, what occurs to me, and I, I haven't read the record in this regard. I would assume that there was a grievance procedure involved in, in the, either the collective bargaining agreement with the public employer or maybe even in, in recognized in the membership agreement. And if, if that's the case, um, then the union must have had procedural, at least procedural, if not substantive obligations in processing grievances. And would those, would those obligations have uh, carried through to the period we're talking about? They would, they would, although the unions, the union as the exclusive representative of the bargaining unit would have, you know, obligations to represent all uh, members and non-members in certain proceedings. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't know the details enough to know if there are some proceedings in, under Minnesota law where only members were entitled to uh, representation as, for example, in California, only members are entitled to representation in um, statutory termination proceeding. But I don't know if that's the case here. Here, Ms. Burroughs received a number of member-specific obligations that she would not have received uh, were she not a member of the union. That, you know, insurance benefits and, and the like, um, the right to vote in union elections, to vote in, on contract ratification. Um, these are matters that are rights of membership that she received in exchange for paying her union dues, and that's sufficient contract. Um, no further waiver was required. The provisions of Janus cited by Mr. Mitchell simply set, set forth the unremarkable proposition that a waiver of rights can't be presumed. All of the cases cited by the Janus court involved situations where courts were considering whether silence could be construed as a waiver of rights. Here, her, the, the agreement she entered into is crystal clear. Ms. Burroughs stated that she voluntarily agreed to pay union membership dues and that she would do so for a period of time 
um, even if she should, she should resign prior to that time. And it also set forth the specific process for her to revoke that authorization, which she exercised, as noted, and ended up paying only about a month of, a, of additional dues. Um, unless the court has further questions, I would get, I'll pass on the remaining amount of my time to my colleague, uh, Ms. Ravindran. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honor. My name is Ramya Ravindran. I represent the APLE uh, AFSCME Council 5 in the Pikarski appeal. And I'm going to focus just on the facts specific to Mr. Pikarski, both to be non-duplicative and also because although he has brought a claim, he's pled a claim that's similar to the one that, uh, brought by Ms. Burroughs in the Hoofman action, the factual predicate of that First Amendment claim was directly contradicted by the evidentiary record specific to Mr. Pikarski. And so his claim fails at an even more fundamental level before even reaching the additional issues that are at issue in the other case. So the Pikarski case involves just a single plaintiff, Mr. Pikarski, who was at all relevant times a member of the union. He never paid any agency fees to the union. Instead, he paid membership dues. And in exchange, he received membership rights, which he took full advantage of throughout his time with the union. As the record here showed, Mr. Pikarski was an active member of the union, regularly participating in the internal affairs of the union, including at one time serving as the president of the local union, which is an elected position only open to dues-paying members. So his claim, like the one brought by Ms. Burroughs, is he's entitled to a refund of membership dues under the First Amendment because he allegedly did not want to join the, the union and only did so because the other option at the time was to be a non-member agency fee pair, and he allegedly never would have agreed to pay any money to the union in the absence of that agency fee requirement. So that's the factual predicate of the First Amendment claim, but that predicate was contradicted by Mr. Pikarski himself in his deposition testimony in this case. When he was asked whether his decision to join the union was based on the agency fee requirement, he said no. And instead, what he testified was that he understood when he signed the union membership application that he was agreeing to become a union member and was authorizing the payment of membership dues from his paycheck. He also testified that he understood that the membership rights that he was receiving in exchange for that payment of dues, rights that he continuously exercised, were only available to him because he was a dues-paying member. And he knew if he switched to non-member status, he would no longer have access to those rights. And so, as he testified, even when his views of the union changed and he stepped down from his position as the local union president, he made a conscious decision to remain a member of the union so that he would continue to have those membership rights and be able to participate in the internal affairs of the union, which he did here. And so what these facts establish is not only a voluntary choice, but a purposeful choice to join and remain in the union and an agreement to pay membership dues in order to receive membership rights. That, that factual record refutes the fact the, the allegation, the factual allegation that underlies the First Amendment claims here, which are the only claims that have been appealed, and they're dispositive of those claims. And so as long as Mr. Pikarski remained a member of the union, the union was permitted to collect dues from him in exchange for continuing to provide him membership rights and benefits, which it did here. And what the evidence in the record is, is that Mr. Pikarski remained a union member until August 13, 2018. That is the date that he submitted a signed request to terminate his membership. That document is in the record, and it is the only document in the record with Mr. Pikarski's signature requesting termination of membership. And he confirmed at his deposition that his dues payment stopped 
immediately upon submission of that document. So there's no constitutional violation that could be made out on these facts, and the court can end its analysis there, uh, affirming the judgment in favor of Council 5. Um, if there aren't any questions specific as to Mr. Pikarski, thank you, then I'll, I'll let the remainder of my 30 seconds go then. Well, I'll give you 30 seconds okay. on mootness if we get to the mootness point. How would you see a way around Campbell Ewald? Do you think the 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 uh, part in Campbell Ewald about depositing money into a guy's account would cover sending a check that he refuses to cash, or how would you deal with Campbell Ewald? Right, I, and I, I think actually the, the the majority opinion in Campbell Ewald provides that explanation. So it, the majority. Uh, when, they, when they were they were distinguishing a case that was cited by the dissent there, the San Pablo uh, Railway Company case, and what the court was saying was looking at is saying, well, when you have an offer uh, of judgment or a, a settlement offer that's rejected, the plaintiff is left was then left empty-handed once that offer is rejected or the the offer of judgment expires, and they distinguish that from a situation where an actual payment is made. And so here, it's, it, there's no question Mr. Pikarski was that is not left empty-handed. Well, has, I understand, I understand, but the, the fact that they talked about depositing money into account makes me wonder if there's some distinction there between an uncashed check and money that's actually possessed by the, by the person. Do you have any, is there any authority after Campbell Ewald on this narrow question of, a che of an uncashed check? I'm sorry, I don't think there's any, uh, so the, the the cases that are cited in the plaintiff's brief I'll deal with, again, someone who's left empty-handed, so offers, settlement offers that are rejected. So here, it's by Mr. Pikarski's own, I mean, he, he has that, it's his to do whatever he wants to do with that check, and the fact that he has decided not to do anything with him doesn't change the fact that he has it. And so if you look at, again, what has whether or not the plaintiff has been left empty-handed, Mr. Pikarski has not. Okay, thank, thank you very much. Very good. For rebuttal time, I don't have, got to get it pinned. All right, there we go. You got. Thank you, Your Honors. I'll begin with Mr. Pitts' discussion of Judge Fisher's concurrence in Diamond and whether this is an involuntary transfer of money as opposed to a voluntary transaction. Mr. Pitts makes a very plausible argument as a matter of first principles that we should view these agency shopper arrangements as voluntary because after all, these employees voluntarily joined the employment of a public entity at a time when they knew they would have to pay money to the union as a condition of their employment. But that stance is hard to square with Janice itself. Janice called this a compelled subsidy of speech. And Janice never really grappled with the question that the employment was voluntary in the first place. No one forced them to decide to work in a public sector agency shop. But nonetheless, Janet, Janice holds that this is compelled. And because Janice says that, I don't think this can plausibly be considered a voluntary transaction, either by Judge Fisher and his concurrence or by Mr. Pitts' remarks today. And may, may I uh, continue or is we to stop here at the zero? Wrap it up. Time's up? Yep. All right. Well, thank you, Your Honors. If you have further questions, I'm happy to answer them. But otherwise, we'll rest on our brief. Thank you. Very good, counsel. The case has been thoroughly briefed and very well argued. Uh, we will take it under advisement.